Hi, welcome into the Replacement Level Podcast. This is version 2.0 of episode 61 with Nathaniel Rakich. I hope you listen to it. I'm re-recording my audio because it came out so bad the first time. I've re-recorded my audio. It sounds a little better, so I'm going to post this instead. So I'm going to cut right to my first question, which is always my first question with all the guests. I asked Nathaniel what got him into baseball in the first place. Uh, wow, uh, big question to start off. Um, you know, I think it's the same thing that attracts, you know, anybody to it. You know, I was, uh, you know, a, a kid. Um, I never actually played the game, but, uh, you know, just enjoyed having it on in the background, enjoyed the, you know, the numbers, certainly. Um, I enjoyed the, you know, the competition. Uh, and, you know, for whatever reason, I got into baseball much more than I got into other sports uh, when I was growing up. Uh, it also didn't hurt that I grew up in Boston uh, in kind of the uh, you know, late 90s, early 2000s era, um, you know, and right as I was getting into the Red Sox, you know, they went on this tear and, and won the World Series for the first time in 86 years. Uh, so that didn't hurt either. Let's talk about the state of polling in general. 2016 wasn't the best year for political projection models. What did they ultimately get right and what did they get wrong? I think that the biggest miss wasn't necessarily in the uh, in the the overall binary prediction, I still think that going into the election, it was more likely, um, given all the evidence, that Hillary Clinton would win rather than Donald Trump. But I think the problem that people ran into was the level of certainty. I think there was a general sense, and whether this is from you know northeastern groupthink or whatever, or you know just looking at the polls and misinterpreting them, that uh, Hillary Clinton was inevitable, and that despite the fact that her lead in the polls was surmountable for Donald Trump. You know, she was looking at a three or four point lead, I think, at that point. Um, people just assumed, well, there's no way that Trump can make up that deficit. He's too unconventional of a candidate. Uh, he's got too many problems. Undecided voters seem likely to break for the quote unquote safe choice, which in this case was Clinton. Um, and that was obviously wrong. So I think it was kind of that subjective application uh, after the data that really tripped a lot of people up. But that said, you know, of course, there were some serious problems with, with the polls, uh, although I should note that, you know, the blanket statement, the polls were wrong. Uh, there's a lot of nuance in that because the national polls were actually uh, pretty accurate. And in fact, they were more accurate than they were in the 2012 election, because, of course, as people know by now, Hillary Clinton did end up winning the popular vote by around two percentage points. And that's only a point or two off where the national polls had it, which, again, was an average of Clinton up being, being up three or four points. Um, it was in certain states that the polling really failed. And of course, those were states like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania that nobody really expected to be competitive. Uh, and that's a combination of, you know, maybe methodologies that need to be tweaked uh, for pollsters. So for instance, they seem to do a, a poor job picking up on uh, undereducated uh, white voters. Um, and then also just there weren't a lot of polls, and especially not a lot of high quality polls in those states to begin with, because people were focusing on, you know, Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, even places like Arizona and Georgia, because they just fundamentally misread the state of the race. Um, so I don't think that we should let go of our faith in you know data and statistics in terms of predicting these things. I think they're the best tools that we have. Um, but maybe, you know, they could have been more precisely applied in the case of the 2016 election. We're going to move off politics in just a second, but I saw you tweet out the other day that Rob Manford actually had a meeting with Donald Trump. 
why? Yeah, that was pretty funny when I saw that. Um, you know, I think it's just a typical I mean, business relationship. You know, MLB uh, is a very political entity, you know, despite what a lot of people on Twitter may, might prefer. Um, and, you know, they are active campaign donors to candidates of both parties. They like to keep a good relationship with the government. Uh, you know, as you probably know, you know, they're the only legal monopoly in the uh, in the, in the country, uh, you know, they're allowed to ha- hold this antitrust exemption that lets MLB be the, o- be the only purveyor of baseball-related entertainment. Um, and so, you know, keeping that up requires keeping good relationships with whoever's in power, a Democrat or Republican. On to baseball, you created a projection system for Hall of Fame elections. Tell me about the system and how you developed it. Basically, this started five years ago. And I noticed uh, in the uh, quote unquote public ballots being released, uh, which I also, you know, due to my political background, call the exit polling. Um, and that's the, the stuff like the Baseball Hall of Fame tracker that Ryan Thibodeau puts out. Uh, before that, it was the gizmo over at Baseball Think Factory. Um, and I, you know, being an election nerd, always loved digging into that raw data, you know, slicing and dicing it this way and that. And I uh, noticed a few years ago uh, that there were patterns in how accurate those numbers ended up being. So, for instance, candidates that were more old school in nature, so closers who relied on traditional stats like saves uh, or even starting pitchers who relied on traditional stats like wins, they would see bumps in their vote total from the public ballots released before the announcement to their final total. And then other candidates whose cases were more subtle, more sabermetrically driven, um, also candidates who suffered from uh, steroid allegations, they would see their total significantly drop. Uh, and if you look over the years, there, the pattern has been very consistent. And so a guy like Tim Raines, for instance, whose case, you know, he do, he falls short on the traditional numbers, but sabermetrically, he actually did uh, you know very well in terms of defense, base running, that sort of thing. Raines tends to drop a solid, you know, 12 points, Every, every year from public ballots to private ballots. And so I said to myself, what if I made a model that accounted for this? And it took the number of public ballots at that time, you know, whatever the announcement is made, made an adjustment to predict the number of private ballots, then combined them to come up with a final vote total. And that's been my uh, model. I've been doing it for five years. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, I've been tweaking it every year, try to make it a little bit more accurate. And, uh, you know, the last year it was, it was pretty darn accurate. Um, so I'm uh, you know, hoping to see good results this year as well, knock on wood. Over the last five years, has the model projected anyone to go in that actually hasn't gotten in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, even an error of a couple of points can make the difference. So my most heartbreaking story on that front uh, was Jeff Bagwell last year. Um, and overall, my model did great last year. It only had an average error of 1.5 points. So for all the candidates up and down the ballot, and, you know, it only missed by by one and a half points on average. But uh, the biggest miss was 3.5 points, which normally is actually pretty good. Uh, you know, that's you know, a, a solid margin of error. But uh, unfortunately, that candidate was Jeff Bagwell. And I did predict him to be 3.5 points higher than he ended up being. And so in the case of Bagwell, who, of course, fell just short of election last year, I had him just above the threshold. And so unfortunately, that miss, even though it was relatively small, was enough to deny him entry into the hall. Um, so for sure, the kind of the, the binary answer of will he get in or won't he get in, that's subject to a lot of error. Um, but I, I, I think that my the numbers that I'm projecting um, are good within a few percentage points either way. Uh, you currently have Bagwell, Reigns, Hoffman, Rodriguez going in with Vlad Guerrero missing by a vote or two. 
Bagwell and Reigns both look like locks, not locks like Griffey was last year, but they seem comfortably ahead enough that they're not going to fall out. That leaves three guys that are right there. Are they basically coin flips to get in? So, yeah, I definitely agree with what you said. Bagwell and Reigns seem like locks at this point. They would have to drop by unprecedented amounts for them to to miss out at this point. Um, so I'm pretty confident in them. Uh, Hoffman, I, I rate as the, the third most likely player to get in. I currently have him at 78%, and that's certainly you know close. It's within you know, the 3.5 points that I mentioned earlier. Um, but he's in good shape, I think, because of his candidate profile, and that is being a closer, um, being uh, reliant on saves. Um, that is something that has a lot of resonance, resonance at least historically, to the uh, private ballots, the people who haven't revealed their votes yet. And so I'm predicting that on pub, on private ballots, Hoffman's going to do 8.5 points better than he does on public ballots. And currently, his public ballots are at 73, which even if that were you know to carry across the board, that would put him very, very close. So he really only needs a small boost on private ballots to get up over 75%. So that's why I think Trevor Hoffman, you know, while, you know, certainly not a sure thing, you know, I would rate his chances as pretty good at this stage. Um, For Pudge and for Vlad, they represent harder cases because they are new candidates to the ballot, of course. And it's hard for my model to make predictions on where they're going to move, whether they're going to lose ground or gain ground uh, when there isn't that precedent uh, like there is for Bagwell, Reigns, and Hoffman. Um, And so... The model, basically what the model does is it looks at other candidates whose votes are closely correlated uh, with uh, those players. So in Pudge's case, his most closely correlated uh, player uh, is Mike Piazza in the past, which makes a lot of sense. You know, Obviously, they're both excellent catchers uh, who statistically well outstrip the standards for induction at their position, but they also both have whispers of steroid use around them. Uh, and then Vlad's most comparable player in that sense is actually Trevor Hoffman. And you know, for whatever reason, his voters and Hoffman's voters tend to, have tended to overlap. And again, I think there is an old school aspect to this. You know, Vlad um, does well on a lot of you know, counting stats, traditional stats, you know, this to the uh, you know, war and a lot of advanced statistics say, oh, maybe he's a borderline guy. Um, but the, the educated guess there, um, to borrow your phrase, is that he's going to do a little better on private ballots. And so Vlad is at 74% in the public ballots, and I have him at 75% in the private ballots. And that adds up currently to 749 So he really is on the cusp. But again, because there's no vote history for those two guys, there's a greater error for them than there is for uh, you know, someone who's been on the ballot a long time, you know, like a Bagwell or a an Edgar Martinez. Um, so, you know, it really is rotten luck that the two guys who are right there within one point to 75% each are the two that we are the most uncertain about. Yeah. And one of the things that Pudge has going for him is that he's on the ballot after Piazza got in. The writers seem to be shifting away from allowing suspicion and suspicion alone to keep someone out of the Hall of Fame. He also is on the ballot after Seeley got voted in and after it looks like here Bagwell's going to get in as well. I think those things all help Pudge. I also think that what really helps Pudge, and this is weird, is that whether this is accurate or not, I think that the perception of steroids is that they help you hit home runs, and Pudge wasn't a big home run hitter. He wasn't breaking any home run records. His career OPS plus is 106. I think Pudge not being a slugger is actually going to help him as well. I don't think the difference between his public and private ballots will be as severe as it was for Piazza and for Bagwell, but I do think he's going to get hurt on the private ballots as well. I, I think that's definitely 
possible. I think that is a little bit of an optimistic view. I, I just to play devil's advocate, would say there could be a lot of voters out there who look at Piazza uh, and especially you know maybe some New York based you know voters or whatever who say, listen, Piazza is you know, arguably the best offensive catcher to ever play the game, and you know he took you know a couple of tries to get on the to get in the hall. Uh, why is Padre Rodriguez getting in on the first ballot? Uh, and especially if people uh, you know. This is getting kind of meta, but if people start to look at uh, Thibodeau's spreadsheet and say, "Oh, he's at 80.5 percent of the vote," um, you know what? I don't think Pudge is a you know first ballot Hall of Famer. I think he's a Hall of Famer, but does he deserve to get in ahead of Piazza? No, and so maybe that affects people's uh, people's votes. Uh, you know, who haven't re- revealed them yet? Um, I don't know. The ballots have, of course, all been sent in at this point, but I do think that the tracker can influence votes, especially early. I think if people see Bonds and Clemens surging early on they might be more willing to vote for them or switch to voting for them as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really interesting confounder. Um, so far, you know, thankfully the, the the overall patterns, you know, of, you know, guys like Reigns and Bonds losing, you know, double digits on the private ballots and guys like Hoffman gaining, uh, that's held pretty steady, but uh, you know, there, you know, between the purge last year, um, between the the increasing visibility of the tracker between next year uh, when all ballots are going to be public, whether the uh, whether the voter wants them to or not, uh, I think these are all things that really threaten to uh, upend a lot of the assumptions that we have about Hall of Fame voting. Let's go back to Hoffman for a minute. You mentioned that your system had him at a plus eight differential on private ballots. Ryan actually had him at two point eight between public and private last year. Where is that discrepancy? So the uh, the difference. So Ryan de- defines things a little bit differently than I do. So he'll he his to him public ballots and private ballots are regardless of when they are announced, um, and so and so he continues to to track you know public ballots that have been released after the announcement. But for me, I'm only concerned in public ballots that are announced before the announcement because just to keep an apples to apples comparison from year to year. And last year, the difference between the I think it was 213 public ballots released before the announcements were uh, and the 227 private ballots that weren't that were either never revealed or were revealed after the announcement that difference for Hoffman was 8.5 and that's where I get that uh, adjustment only once have five guys gone in that was the inaugural class of 1936 four went in two years ago but that's rare in itself do you actually think we have a shot of five guys going in and if five go in do you think any changes will be made to the process yeah, you know that's a great question. You know, as you mentioned uh, off the top, uh, until uh, last night, actually uh, Tuesday the tenth, my projections did have all five of those guys get in. Although, you know, in, in Pudge's and Guerrero's case, it was just barely. Um, and I definitely think it's possible um, that five guys will get in. It, you know, this is a very simplistic way to look at it, but I think if you assume that Bagwell and Reigns are locks, you know, that's at least two, and then the other three guys, Hoffman, Rodriguez, and Guerrero, are probably about coin flips. Um, so if you think about flipping three coins and you need to get heads all three times, that certainly will happen occasionally. Um, but much more likely you're going to get one head or two heads. And I think, you know, therefore the most likely scenario is three or four, uh, guys getting in, you know, with an over under of 3.5 maybe. But, uh, but I definitely think that five is doable. And in my opinion, would go a long way toward easing the, uh, the backlog of qualified candidates on the ballot. Um, if I get in, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it'd be interesting to see if there were changes made. Graham Womack had an interesting article about this the other day 
and you know speculating that you know, the, you know the hall you know which is inherently conservative you know, would want to you know maybe pull some back but then on the other hand i think you have a large contingent of the the writers themselves the bbwaa um wanting to liberalize the process you had you know the the bbwaa put uh, forth a proposal that would increase the the ballot limit from 10 to 12 um you know that seemed to be very popular with the writers but the hall shut it down um, because they wanted to maintain a more uh, conservative process um and so i think you would see the writers be very happy if five people went in you know because it would make their lives easier in terms of choosing you know in the case of oh i think 12 candidates are deserving which two do i leave off um it would make their lives easier and uh you know, in, in the opinion of many writers, would be the right thing to do, um, given that this era is relatively underrepresented in the Hall of Fame. Um, but then, you know, it'd, it'd be interesting to see. I think the big wild card is whether how far the Hall is willing to maybe take things out of the writers' hands to to make that change. And that, to me, would be a very big break in precedent. And I'm not sure they would go that far. Um, I think maybe if you saw five people getting in on a regular basis. That might be different, but I think this is probably an anomaly and, you know, a a somewhat unlikely one at that. You know, again, I think three or four is a much more likely scenario. Well, I think if five actually went in, it would be the best thing that could happen in the Hall of Fame, whether they realize it or not. Let's move on to some other notables with your system. You currently have Edgar Martinez coming in at 65%. What does your model say about him? Yeah, so he's been, uh, he's actually one of the easier guys to predict. So last year, his uh, private minus public differential was 6.8. Uh, in 2015, his private minus public differential was 6.8. Um, so there's a, you know, a fairly amount, a fairly stable amount there for him. Uh, so I think that, you know, just going from 67 uh, down, uh, you know, into what? 65 is where I have him currently. Um, you know, given that so many of the public ballots are already banked, you know, we're almost at 50% of quote unquote precincts reporting. Um, I think that's a, you know, a, a reasonable estimate, although it's certainly possible it'll drop a couple more points. But, um, I think the, you know, the big thing is that he is not going to get in this year, but, uh, he's clearly put himself in a very strong position for you know, future years, whether that's next year or, uh, in 2019. Both Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens have made significant strides forward, currently at 66% on the tracker. You have them coming in in the high 50s, around 58%. Interesting cases. I think there's a ceiling for both of them. I don't know if they'll ever be able to reach 75% because I still think there's a large amount of voters that will always refuse to vote for them. How high do you think they can ultimately get? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I'm not sure it's a hard ceiling, but I think that it'll be diminishing returns for sure. That at some point, you know, their gains are going to become, you know, just a few points every year. I, I'm interested to see whether, you know, this gain that we're seeing, you know, whether it's because, you know, of Bud Selig's election or other factors, whether it is truly across the board or whether it's just happening in the public ballots. I could envision a scenario where the private voters aren't kind of applying that that logic of saying, well, you know, Selig is in, so, you know, Bonds and, and Clemens should be, you know, be, just by virtue of the fact that they haven't revealed their ballots, you know, they may feel less accountable and they, and therefore more comfortable to kind of applying uh, the storied logic inconsistently in that way. Um, so it's possible that you could see a bigger differential between public and private this year. Um, that's going to be one of the things that I'm looking for on announcement day. Um, I would say that, you know, I think at this point, I think, you know, there's a very strong precedent of anybody who got above, I think 50%, um, you know, most of those guys get in eventually, whether it's through the, the veterans committee or, uh, eventual election by the writers. Um, so I, 
do think that at this point they'll get in eventually. Um, so I, I think that their ceiling is probably around, you know, 75, um, you know, coincidentally enough. Um, and whether that's because a lot of the, the older, uh, voters are getting purged, um, and, you know, with the, the kind of big reveal that's going to happen next year of every vote becoming public, um, whether that could, um, force their momentum with private ballots to keep pace with their public ballots. Um, but I think that at this point, just even with diminishing returns, 75% seems attainable. Yep. Most of those guys get in. Gil Hodges is the only exception. He might still get in at some point as well. Another guy who you have projected to come in over 50% is Mike Mucina. You currently have him at 53%, which would be another strong increase year over year for him. I think Mucina is actually benefiting from some of Schilling's loss of support. I think some of that is going Mucina's way. What does your model say about him? Definitely. Uh, so I think he's in his fourth year uh, now, if uh, if I have that correct. Uh, and to be at 53%, you know, is obviously a great achievement. I definitely feel good about his chances. Being, you know, I think a lot of people, again, it's just maybe being more enlightened and, you know, as kind of the conversation enters the bloodstream of, you know, Mucina and Schillings, for that matter, excellence in the era of high offense. Um, it, it's convincing people. I think that's a an argument that doesn't take a lot of uh, statistical know-how to grasp. Mike Mucina, he had a high ERA, sure, but he did so when people were scoring a ton of runs. And that, I think, is logical to people, even people who don't necessarily understand, you know, war or, you know, defensive runs saved or something like that. Um, you know, and so I think that, and especially with the, the kind of dearth of like you said, um, other starting candidate, starting pitching candidates on the ballot, you know, especially if people aren't inclined to vote for Schilling, um, they might immediately be drawn to Messina. And I think there's, there's a sense for, you know, Oh, like, you know, I want to create positional balance here. Who's the best starting pitcher on the ballot. And, uh, you know, increasingly, um, that is looking like Messina to a lot of folks. So I'm definitely optimistic about him getting in before his 10 year eligibility is up. Yeah, me too. I think the writers had previously decided that Schilling was the better candidate, but he's lost a lot of support because of his political views. Do you think that's okay? You know, speaking just personally, um, you know, I wouldn't, if I had a vote, which of course I don't, I wouldn't apply the character clause uh, at all. So, you know, I think that somebody like Bonds and Clemens, uh, their greatness is undeniable, uh, despite the fact that they probably used PEDs. Uh, and I think that that logic has to carry over uh, with Kurt Schilling, um, even though, you know, we're not electing him to the Hall of Fame for, you know, any, uh, you know, reason other than what he did in the years when he was active and specifically when he was wearing a uniform and playing on the field. Um, so I definitely would hope that people only look at his uh you know, his accomplishments on the field, which, you know, in my opinion, especially again, being a Bostonian, you know, were certainly worthy. You have Schilling dropping 10% from his vote total last year. How does your model account for Schilling's miscues? The great thing about the model is that it really doesn't assign motive or, or judgment or anything like that. Uh, it is very trusting in the, the numbers that uh, the Ryan Thibodeau puts together uh, in the sense that you know, if people aren't voting for Schilling because, you know, of his political views or if there was some other development, some, you know, somewhere else, you know, like, for instance, Bonds and Clemens, you know, rising uh, by a lot, the, the model doesn't know about those developments, but it knows that in uh, Ryan's polling, those, you know, players, you know, Clemens and Bonds have increased and it knows that Schilling has decreased. And it just and then it also knows that, you know, those guys have 
decreased by a certain amount historically from pu- public to private, and it just uh, um, applies that adjustment as normal. And again, historically, the, the public and private ballots, even though they have been at different levels, they've risen and fallen in, in tandem. Uh, and you know, I, I, you know, until there, until there is a clear example of that not happening, um, I think it's best to continue using that method. So I just, you know, straightforwardly right now, Schilling is at 53% in the public ballots. His uh, kind of negative adjustment is actually the, the largest of anybody. He was already uh, pretty hated by, uh, by the old school private ballot crowd. And so he loses 15 points uh, from public to private. And, you know, as you mentioned, that uh, adds up to about a 44 percent final projected final vote total in my model. Let's look at two other guys before we wrap it up. Lee Smith is on his final year on the ballot. He's kind of an outlier in your system. Tell me why. Smith's boost from public to private is actually the highest of anybody. He gets a 12 point positive adjustment. Uh, So I'm significant. I'm predicting him to do significantly better with private ballots than with public ballots. So that 36% number might surprise people who see that he's only at 29% in the public ballots. Um, but he, you know, again, you know, because old school voters love saves, they, you know, he has always done really, really well uh, with uh, with private voters. Uh, and it's actually going to be kind of a shame to lose him because he is kind of this touchstone um, in my model for um, for kind of painting a picture of the private voters because, you know, without him and Hoffman, and especially if Hoffman gets elected this year, um, there aren't a lot of players who uh, get boosts in private ballots anymore. I think uh, one of them is is Larry Walker. He would be the next biggest. He gets a four-point boost from public to private, but that's really not all that significant. Um, and so it'll actually be interesting next year if both of those guys, Hoffman and, and Smith, uh, drop off, go off the ballot for whatever reason, um, because the private ballots are going to be a little bit more of a, of a mystery at that point. Um, you know, we don't know which maybe new candidates they might see as, as a, as a cause celebra. Um, you know, that, that, you know, Smith is basically a very useful statistical tool, um, as actually we'll talk about when we, when we get to Posada. Yeah. I think Vlad is going to get a boost on private ballots as well. Next year, that guy will be Omar Vizquel. I know all of the ballots are going to be public next year, but for the people who hold their ballots until after the announcement, is made as to who gets in. I think we're going to see Omar Vizquel get a huge boost from them. Jorge Posada is the last guy we're going to hit on. He's also making his debut. You mentioned there's a correlation between Lee Smith. Tell me about that. Yeah, so that's another, he's another guy being a uh, first timer like Pudge and like Vlad, uh, where there is a greater than usual uh, margin of error. Uh, So I see him as gaining one point from public to private, and I'm actually basing that on Lee Smith. So the strongest correlation that Posada has with any uh, existing player on the ballot who has a more robust vote history is actually Smith. Uh, so people who vote for Smith tend to be a lot more likely to vote for Posada. Um, so that's why you know you know the the poll of uh, you know Lee, you know, Lee Smith gaining 12 points uh, kind of pulls Jorge Posada to give him one point, uh, which of course that sounds like a big difference. But when Posada is getting only four percent in, uh, in the, the polling, uh, proportionally, obviously, you know, one, a one percent gain is a big deal. And so yeah, so I currently have him getting five uh, percent of private ballots, which unfortunately doesn't average out quite up to five percent to keep him on the ballot. Um, he's currently at four point seven percent, but again, I mean a point three percentage difference as well within the margin of error. So that could certainly change. But of course, in the big picture, uh, he doesn't seem likely to uh, to make the Hall of Fame, of course, but uh, even to stay on the ballot, you know, even uh, you know whether it's this year or next year, you know, his fate does kind of seem sealed. 
Yeah, and everyone stuck between Lee Smith and Posada is basically in ballot purgatory. There are good players there. There are some statistically deserving players there. But realistically, they have no chance of getting in via the writers. I think that's probably true. Uh, I would just point out that Larry Walker has seen a mini spike this year um, based from, you know, versus last year's uh, voting. And I find that kind of interesting. Not sure exactly what's going on there. Uh, and then I would also just point out Manny Ramirez. Um, you know, He's debuting at currently 25% in the public ballots. I have him at 23% in my projected final vote. Um, you know, and for a first year player, that's not terrible. Uh, of course he does have the specter of, you know, or more than the specter the, the two, uh, steroid suspensions, uh, going against him. Uh, so I'm sure that will work against him climbing up the ballot at a, any kind of rapid pace. Um, but you know, I think it is too early to say what happens with Manny. I mean, we're looking at, you know, this is his first year on the ballot who knows what things are going to look like in, you know, 2026, uh, you know, when his, you know, his 10th year of eligibility, uh, by that point, they may have elected bonds. They may have elected Clemens. They may have elected a rod, uh, and people might feel very differently. Um, so I, I wouldn't close the book on Manny yet, but, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly, he's got a long way to go. All right. So that's my interview with Nathaniel. I hope you enjoyed it. My apologies to those of you that listened to the first time I uploaded this and had to suffer through the terrible audio on my end. I wanted to post it again because I thought Nathaniel was excellent. Again, you can give him a follow on Twitter at BaseBallot and check out his blog for more projections with the same name. Thanks again for listening. I'll have a new episode up soon.